Mac Power Users, episode 388, MPU Plus, recorded on Ju- July 25th, 2017. Welcome back to the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. I kind of forgot what we called this show, David. We haven't recorded it in so long. Yeah, it's evolved a little bit, hasn't it? Yeah, it's not really MPU Live anymore. We call it MPU Plus. Um, but we, we try to get one of these done every every month or so, maybe every other month, uh, depending on how the feedback comes in. And we definitely got a lot of feedback today, and we've got an awesome guest. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, we have a couple of reminders. And uh, first off, David, uh, you are talking at the Command-D conference that's hosted by our pal Sal Segoyan, and it's all about automation. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's it's in early August in Silicon Valley. It's going to be a blast. Uh, uh, Allison Sheridan is now on the uh, faculty list. So there's, there's going to be a bunch of very smart people there explaining how to use their Macs and iOS devices to automate more. And I think it's really going to be a gathering of a, a lot of really in- interesting nerds that want to get better at using their Macs and iOS devices. So it, it's a great time. If you're going to be in the neighborhood, I strongly recommend hanging out. I've already heard from several MPU listeners that are going to be there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll put a link in the show notes. I think Andy Anatko is going to be there. Jason Snell's going to be there. Um, and, and then obviously a lot of great automation gurus, including Sal, who's, who's putting the thing on. So it's a, going to be a great conference. Uh, the other thing that we want to remind people about, this is probably the last show that we'll have time to talk about it. Um, we are doing our uh, Relay FM members only bonus show. Uh, that's going to be coming up next month, probably early next month. And if you are a Relay, Relay FM member, which means you kick us a couple of bucks every month or you pay once for the year, um, you can have access to a couple of features as a member. And that includes um, a bonus newsletter, access to a bonus podcast, and a bonus episode of MPU once a year. We're going to be doing that next month in August. Um, and what we figured we'd do this as an Ask Me Anything style episode. And, and we put an asterisk there because although we, we will take questions on a variety of subjects, we would kind of prefer non-tech related questions since we, we cover tech all the time on Mac Power Users. Uh, we thought it might be fun to take a break from tech. You know, last year we did our Star Trek Star Wars episode. Uh, so we thought we might take a little break from tech and and answer some of your general questions. So um, send those questions uh, via Twitter to the hashtag MPUAMA, and uh, and we will try to include those um, on our member show. And if you aren't a Relay FM member, there's still time to join up. You can do that at relay.fm slash MPU. If you guys don't ask at least one question that makes both me and Katie um, uncomfortable, then you kind of let us down. So, there you so go. get on that. Yeah, more more uncomfortable questions today, but please. <laughs> uh, so we have a guest uh, on this feedback show, uh, Sharantha Betagay. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, well, I mean, you, Sharantha, you push all my buttons. <laughs> you, you, you like sent this email knowing that I'm like Dave, David's just going to bite all over this, isn't he? This is this is just done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he opened the email explaining he's a baritone saxophonist, which is amazing to me. Are you are you a Jerry Mulligan fan? I had to ask. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jerry Mulligan, Harry Carney, Pepper Adams, Gary Smalley, and the list goes on. 
Yeah, I love all those guys, especially just the cool jazz air. But anyway, that's not why you're here. Yeah, uh, Sharath is here because he won an Apple Distinguished Educator Award. There's only 35 of these handed out in Canada last year. He got one of them. He's a music teacher and composer. And he's doing some really cool stuff in the classroom. I want to talk a little bit about that. I also want to talk about just a little bit about um, your exposure to the um, to the music community and, and how things are going for musicians these days. Because in addition to being a, a teacher, you're also a working musician. Um, so let, let's just start out with the thing that got Apple excited about you. And that's that you're using a bunch of Apple gear in the classroom to help people learn music better. Absolutely. Yeah, I use a combination of... Uh, my MacBook Pro and an iPad in, in combination to be able to create a bunch of learning tools for the for the class in class and online. Uh, just a little bit of background: I teach at Humber College in Toronto, which is a wonderful uh, institution in in the, in the GTA here, and and I teach in the music program. Uh, I teach the music theory courses at Humber, which are very kind of lecture based courses. And um, you know, when I arrived at Humber several years ago uh, to to start teaching here in two thousand and nine. I was looking around the first day of class for the overhead projector because, you know, I was very used to that kind of technology for teaching music theory. You mark up your scores, you get the red pan out, you get your transparencies going. It's, um, you know, it's the way that I was very much used to doing it. And and to my dismay, uh, the overhead projectors were sitting dusty in the corner of the room. And so uh, along came the iPad. And, and for me, that has kind of been one of the main ways that I've been able to help communicate things with my students a little better. Uh, my big passion is frankly... Uh, helping my students to see the connections, you know, the connections between elements of music, connections between one style and another, and, and one artist or another, um, and connections between genres, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I found that the iPad really, really helps me to do that, especially when I have to analyze music. Uh, so the main tools that I use on the iPad are things that really are not music-specific apps, but apps that are mostly for annotation basis. I mean, Keynote is wonderful for being able to make little annotations, but really the apps that I like in particular are things like GoodNotes. And that's actually the one that I've come to use as kind of my primary teaching tool. Uh, I took some inspiration from listening to some of the shows that you have done earlier um, and uh, talking about GoodNotes and, and seeing the potential of that. I thought, okay, this is probably better than Keynote and PowerPoint as a tool for just being able to communicate and and annotate and mark up scores really thoroughly. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a real hands-on tool and, and the features that they've thrown into the app that make it uh, much more teacher-friendly as a presentation tool, I think are just so subtle and beautiful. Like, I love how the, the slide overview uh, in iOS 10 is, is kind of muted from the student side. So if I have my iPad plugged into the projector, then I can slide over and take attendance or look at my lesson plan notes in another app like Omni Outliner, which I also use. And my students will never see it because they're just looking at my GoodNotes screen. So th those are the little things that I think the folks at GoodNotes have really figured out to uh, allow for a much more seamless kind of distraction-free experience for the student. I mean, I, I know as a student... Uh, that I would probably be very easily distracted if I were in a, in a classroom where a teacher was using technology, but using it in a way that that was distracting, like flipping back and forth between different modes of learning all the time. So I really actively try to stick to one technology and use it as much as I can. So that's why something like GoodNotes has come in really, really handy for me. So now when you, so when you bring a score into GoodNotes, because it's funny, I'd never really thought about it for music. I, you know, I, 
Um, there's other apps that are really well made for viewing sheet music and, and, and scanning between them. Um, you know, but, but I'd never really thought about, well, what about annotation of music? Absolutely. Well, I mean, music theory is all about, I mean, for those who are unfamiliar, you know, beyond the basic kind of concepts like reading basic notes and rhythms, for me, it's all about seeing patterns, right? Big picture ideas. So if I have a score in front of me and my students have the same score in sheet music format at their desks, I can mark it up with all kinds of colors and brackets and arrows and lines and shapes and use the laser pointer and, and use different kinds of terminologies and nomenclature that we have in our classrooms. And it's, it's a whole lot more effective than just talking about it, uh, I find. And then also, if I'm doing it live in class, my students are much more likely to be engaged and actually follow along and copy and ask questions and yeah, I mean, Fourscore is amazing. I use it for practice all the time. But in the classroom, I really prefer GoodNotes because the interface is much cleaner, it's much nicer, and, and for annotation, I think it's even clearer for, for teaching purposes. Now, you are also, how are you getting the iPad onto the projector? Is it, are you wired in or are you going wireless? Yeah, I used to do <laughs> I used to do the wireless method. I used an app called Doseri, which is is uh, similar to other kinds of apps where you plug the MacBook directly into the projector and then you can set up either a peer-to-peer -peer connection or uh, some other protocol like that to allow you to beam your iPad over wirelessly. Um, it was a little bit cumbersome for me because I realized that our school has a bunch of firewalls up that prevent devices from talking to each other. So that's, I'm sure a lot of other educators will relate to that, you know, whatever environment you teach in, if that's the case. And I understand the rationale for that. But for me, I was, you know, really hoping to use that technology wirelessly and, you know, walk around the room with my iPad, sit down at the piano and annotate up the score and have everything magically appear on the screen. Um, and we can't use Apple TVs, as far as I know, for that same reason with the projectors. They'll just get shut down by the IT network. Um, so really, I just kind of said to heck with it. I'm just going to plug straight into the projector and, and forget it. Yeah. Well, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And it's um, simpler, right? Yeah. We even have a question we're going to deal with later in feedback from a teacher saying, how do I deal with this? And one thought I had was, I mean, it would cost money, but if you could find some money in the budget to get a, a simple like airport express and an Apple TV and create a small network just in that classroom for the projector. I mean, you could, you could put a password on it so students couldn't access it. It wouldn't expose the school because you would, the devices would be on this little separate network. Um, I don't know if you've ever considered that, but it seems to me like that would be one way to get around it. The only downside is you got to buy gear to make it happen. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I, I'll give it a try. I'm skeptical just because I know that there's certain protocols in place at the school that, that from, from the other teachers that I've talked to, I think that may be an issue, but um, I, I would love to give that a try and see if it works. And you also use cameras um, very aggressively. I mean, you've got the, uh, a lot of, it was very interesting looking at the video of how you did that. Yeah, there's a couple of different things. I mean, of course, you know, the iPad is such a natural point of access for, for a camera because the ultimate feedback that you can get is if you're playing or, or singing or doing something physical, like in my, my some of my classes, my students do conducting practice, it really helps to have a bit of visual feedback to see yourself. And so I use that all the time to record my students and even annotate those videos sometimes with, with applications like a coach's eye, which is a great uh, tool that's used by sports teams 
uh, to sort of John Madden style markup video live. It's it's a really great little tool that's that's worth checking out. Um, but more recently, actually, I, I had a bit of a brainwave when I was also teaching music theory and realizing that, you know, I spend most of my time and I'm teaching music theory sitting at the piano and my students are sitting in their seats. They're listening to me and they're watching me. But you know, if they don't have perfect pitch or if they don't have the greatest command of the instrument on piano or if they're not piano players, they probably don't know exactly what I'm playing all the time and how great would it be if they could just see it. And so um, I started experimenting with some camera options. I tried to hook up my iPhone to a boom stand and levitate it above the piano. And that was a bit of a disaster and did all kinds of things to try and use wireless How many wireless times did you break options. your iPhone? <laughs> oh, man. I had a very, uh, very good case. I'll just say that. Um, but... I ended up just going with a wired option and I purchased a Logitech uh, C615 webcam, which um, is not the top of the line HD webcam, I think that Logitech had or has, uh, but it's tripod mountable and it's very portable. So I hooked up the C615 uh, to a boom stand, a boom mic stand, um, and uh, purchased a little uh, tripod mount that they make for bicycles. There's a Japanese company called the Minura, I believe, that makes these bicycle handlebar tripod mounts. And so I sort of, you know, rigged up this camera to the boom mic stand so that I could levitate it over the piano and then just plug it straight into my MacBook Pro and and just, uh, you know, use a video video and app run that so to the projector. broadcast. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and then my students could see my hands at all times when I'm playing and and speaking to them. So um, it, that's been huge. Um, it was funny at first because I actually had to go around and find an app that wouldn't invert the position of my hands and mirror image it because we forget that anytime we're using Skype or video chat, the mirror image is what you actually see, you know, so it didn't work for that purpose. So I, I found a free app called Dwayne Cam, D-W-A-Y-N-E. And um, it doesn't invert the image. It doesn't even record video. It's just a a, a viewer. And uh, I love those apps. It's like it's like a guy who works in a bar who just needed that for something, <laughs> and he made right. that and he stuck it on the internet. And now it's helping you teach music in Toronto. I know. I want to shake Dwayne's hand. I don't know who he is, but uh, thank you, Dwayne. Yeah. So that's been a big help. I've also used that to kind of uh, create a whole library of videos too for my students. And, you know, the, the piano cam, as I've come to, to call it, uh, I've used it to create all kinds of things within iMovie. So then for some of the more advanced topics, my students can come back to the topic later on, go online to our website to, or to our Blackboard site rather, and review the content and, and watch it a couple of times and dissect it a bit. Now, you were chosen as an Apple Distinguished Educator. Tell us a little bit about what that program is, because until you had written us, it's something that I didn't know anything about. Yeah, it's funny. I came upon it quite by accident. I was uh, hopping around the Apple website one day and and just saw a link to this Apple Distinguished Educator program. I'd, I didn't know anyone in the program. I didn't know anything about it, which is kind of part of the reason why I'm so excited to talk about it today, because 
I had zero human exposure to this thing before just finding out about it online and applying for it. So basically, the Apple Distinguished Educator Program is a program that Apple has been running for several years now. Uh, The best way I can describe it is it's like a community of practice. It's a bunch of like-minded teachers from around the world, people who teach in uh, K-12 to or elementary school up to high school and up into college and universities like where I teach, uh, that are just really passionate about using iPads and Macs in their classrooms in new and interesting and innovative ways. And that's the whole premise of the program, I think, is is to be able to bring these educators from different walks of life together in community. So there are two aspects to it. There is a, a, a website, but but the primary thing that, that, that got me most excited was the academy. So um, they have a regional academies, as far as I know, every two years. Uh, this is my first year in the program. I just got accepted and I just came back from the academy a few weeks ago. So I'm part of the brand new class of Uh, 2017. So this is all a very new experience for me. Um, The application period happens only once every two years. So you kind of have to look out for that. And and if you go to ade.apple.com, you can actually pop your email address in there and they'll just send you a note when the next application period begins, which is really useful because it kind of comes and goes. Uh, so you you apply for the program, you submit a two-minute video of what you're doing in the classroom with Apple technology uh, and showcasing some of your students' work and how you help to communicate that knowledge with other teachers. And then, you know, you get in or not. And <laughs> uh, I got in this time and... Um, this was my first time applying, and I was thankful to get in uh, on the first first crack. And um, it, it was really an amazing experience. Uh, so they selected 35 educators from Canada. They have this program in six or seven countries, I believe, uh, all within the month of July this year. They had them in the U.S. They have them in Australia and, and, and Asia and all over the world. And um, there were a total of 35 people from Canada that they selected. They also brought back 35 alumni who have been part of this program in past years. So I got to interact with some of the veterans from the program, and as well as 20 staff from Apple who came from uh, either Canada or the U.S. So we had some folks from Cupertino who were there. Uh, they're, they're really pushing coding, of course, and coding education as, as, the, as uh, an important thing. Uh, thing to be considered uh, for, for, for the 21st century. And, and so they were talking a lot about Swift and, and coding with Swift. And they actually had a Swift programmer from, from California who had come, uh, not to present, just to learn, actually, from, from us, which was kind of uh, refreshing. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a combination of a conference, a workshop, and a networking opportunity. We had presentations from various other ADEs or distinguished educators, uh, showcase presentations. We had keynote presentations. But the most meaningful thing for me was getting to uh, really hear people's stories and network and also play around with some of the great tools that I think Apple is putting out there to help teachers teach more effectively and and, and more meaningfully. Um, I got to play a lot with Apple's new Clips app, which is their new social media video sharing app. Uh, And I really felt that it was an excellent experience. I'm just kind of getting started with the program. Um, But it's really wonderful. It has some different features to offer from what you might see in iMovie or the other tools that Apple has. But they've really done a lot to kind of make some of these pro features that you might not expect really accessible. Like, uh, for instance, you know, if you're recording video into this program, you hit a button and it will live caption the video for you in real time. And as someone who has to record, you know, four to five or 10 or 20 minutes worth of video content every week for an online class in iMovie, where there is no 
auto captioning ability at all. I mean, the, the, the idea of being able to have something auto captioned without having to resort to YouTube or another source like that is absolutely enormous and, and a huge time saver. And, and, uh, it's great because then, you know, people uh, who uh, have uh, hearing uh, issues, so uh, they can access the education too. You know, when clips came out, it was, it, it kind of arrived to a fizzle, you know, people aren't that excited about it, I think. And I think there's a bit of a learning curve to it, but it's, you know, it's one of these things, if you do spend a little bit of time just figuring out how it works, it's really powerful. Absolutely it is. And, and I mean, it's different. It does have a different skill set or feature set than iMovie. But I think the core purpose of it is to share short clips of material and, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. Uh, but from start to finish, I mean, even if you've never used the app before, you can make something that looks pretty darn professional and well-organized and presentable within not very much time. I, I dare say less than it would take to make a, a good iMovie presentation and, and with some different features too. It's worthwhile checking out. Now, you mentioned that Apple was really pushing clips this year and you actually did some work on it as part of the ADE program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, there were a number of sessions during this academy, which is about a two and a half day academy where we got to do some workshop type of activities. So, you know, they were kind of like we were students in a class, really. There were sort of pair and, and group projects where we were asked to author some video content that was meaningful to us based on a certain subject area and a certain demographic. So I got together with another one of the music teachers who happened to be at the event, Isaac Moore, who's a high school teacher here in Ontario. And uh, we'd never met before prior to the event, but we kind of put our heads together and said, okay, we're going to make some one minute videos on teaching music. And it seems like there's a need for, uh, for us to author some videos that might be useful for those who are teaching music in a classroom, but perhaps don't have a background in a particular subject area or don't have a background as a performer, et cetera, et cetera. Just some quick tips to get uh, some 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 education happening for the teachers. I mean, we just made that decision for ourselves, but put our heads together as a group. And, you know, within a couple of hours of working together, we're able to come up with a few different examples of videos that would be easily authorable. In fact, we, we put them online uh, almost immediately, and you can find them up on my uh, social media accounts, which I'll, I'll point you to later. But, um, you know, it was a great, a great opportunity to be able to play. And I think that's one of the things that I often miss as a teacher, because when I'm teaching, a teaching for me is a relatively solitary exercise. You do what you do in in your own classroom, you have your students, but I, I rarely have an opportunity to interact with other teachers outside of the staff room or, or a casual conversation or a faculty meeting. And we don't really get to play like that. And this was a great opportunity to just be able to get our hands dirty and say, what is the experience really like for a student who is in the shoes of learning using the technology that we ask them to use? I mean, it's a really relevant question, right? We, we have our own user experience but for them, the user experience is different. So it was good for us to kind of put our, our student hats on and see what would what, what happen. You know, I would bet that there are people listening to the show right now who are also ADE, Apple Distinguished Educators. Um, or there are, are, are people that should be that just probably didn't know to apply. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I, I think it's a large family. It's, and I say family, I really felt like that sense of community was, was evident from the very beginning. I mean, I was very skeptical when I got accepted into this program once I found out, frankly, that the majority of the attendees were going to be from K to 12, so elementary to high school. I thought, well, 
I teach in a college. I teach in a degree program. I mean, is this stuff that they're going to be talking about really relevant to me? But when I came and I met everybody, I realized what a like-minded group of people this was. And I was so thrilled about that because I feel like there's new opportunities to connect, collaborate, and have good discussions, ongoing discussions throughout the year. Uh, there's a chat that happens on Twitter every Tuesday night called ADE Chat, and, and they have ADEs coming in to answer questions and ask questions. And it's a it's a constant ongoing dialogue, and I think it's awesome. And, and yeah, I, I apparently was kind of an anomaly because most of the time people come to this program because they knew somebody else who was already in the program, and, and I didn't. So... Yeah, if anything, um, I'm I'm just here to spread the word and uh, hope that other folks will go to ade.apple.com and check it out. Yeah, and it, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes so you can sign up for it. Sounds like you may have just missed the window uh, for a little while if it's every two years. Yeah, spring of 2019 would probably be the next application date. But if you are an ADE, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show where we just get a collection of MPU, Mac Power User ADEs and talk about some of the, the workflows they're using. But um, congratulations on this. It sounds like it's well-deserved. Thank you very much. It was a really honor. So tell us a little about where people can find all of the work that you're doing, where they can find your social media sites and, and see some of these great clips. So the easiest place to find my information is Bedegay Music on all the social media accounts. I'll spell that for you, of course, B-E-D-D-A-G-E Music. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and also my website, bedegaymusic.com, and find everything you need to find, and, and please feel free to get in touch. Well, outstanding. Con- congratulations once again. I'm sure we'll check in with you later to see how things are going, and... Um I need you to make a two-minute video uh, explaining how to get my soprano sax in tune because that is a problem I have, and I'm just hoping a two-minute video will solve that for me. Warning, I may not be able to, to cram that into two minutes, but I'll try. <laughs> just I ship it to him, the, the answer is just to say, repeat the word practice for two minutes. <laughs> yeah, that factors into it. <laughs> I did find a cool app for that, by the way. It's, um, let me see if I can get it on. Uh, Hold on one second, Katie. As I throw things around my office, I didn't think I'd get into this, but I found a very cool app. You know, I talked about tuning apps recently on the show and I found an even better one. Oh, it's called TE tuner. I love it. So it shows me exactly how far out of tune I am as I work myself up the sky. <laughs> anyway, thank you again, Sharanta and, and congratulations. And, and thanks for joining us on the Mac power users. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Away. Travel smarter with the suitcase that charges your phone. Get $20 off with the code MPU. Your luggage shouldn't cost more than your plane ticket, and that's why Away makes smart premium suitcases for under just $300. You know how sometimes you get a piece of technology or gear in your life that just makes you happy every time you use it? That's me and my Away carry-on. I love my Away carry-on. It's made with premium German polycarbonate, which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and it's still lightweight. Away offers four sizes of the suitcase, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large. I also kind of like how they don't get so cute with the names. And they have nine great colors for you to choose from. Away suitcases feature a patent-pending compression system, which is great if you're an overpacker, along with four 360-degree spinner wheels. 
I've pushed my away bag through airports and parking lots all over the place, and they still work great. Away carry-ons are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, while still maximizing the amount you can pack. They have TSA combination locks built right in. There's a ton of great little features in these, like the removable, washable laundry bag, so you can separate your clean clothes from your worn ones. But perhaps my favorite feature is the inclusion of a USB charging battery right inside the luggage. It's got USB ports so you can charge your device while traveling. No longer do you have to fight in the airport to find the seat with a charging plug. You can bring it with you with your luggage. A single charge of the Away carry-on can provide enough battery to charge your phone five times. You'll never be without power again. I've traveled a lot with my Away carry-on over the last year. I love the way the inside of the bag is engineered to help you pack your stuff more compactly. I love those free-flowing wheels. I can push it through any airport. In fact, I often put my other bags and my backpack right on top of the away carry-on and just push it through the airport. And I love that USB charging battery. Over my life, I've owned a lot of rugged, heavy luggage. And I've owned a lot of flimsy, light luggage. But I've never owned luggage that's both light and rugged. And that's what you get with away. They believe in the quality of their products. That's why they offer a lifetime guarantee. If anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for life. And they also have a 100-day trial with no questions asked return policy with free shipping on any order within the lower 48 states of the U.S. So travel smarter with the suitcase that charges your phone. To find out more about Away, go to awaytravel.com MPU. And if you use the code MPU at checkout, you'll get $20 off any of their suitcases. That's awaytravel.com dot com slash mpu and the code mpu for twenty dollars off thank you so much to away for their support of this show and relay fm all right well that was a great segment um we do have a ton of uh mac power users related questions um these are kind of general these aren't really related to uh any shows i think but um let, let's see what we can do to kind of knock some of these out since they've been sitting for a while uh the first one we've got is from steven uh, it's relevant to this. He wants to know how do we capture feedback for all the podcasts that we listen to? Do we have OmniFocus or some kind of context? Do we just use a sticky note? Or do we have one of our many minions listen and generate feedback on our behalf? I think that's definitely what we should do. I need a minion to do this. <laughs> that's a great idea. I want to do that. How do you how do you deal with it though seriously? Well, so the biggest thing is I I really enjoy and I hope our listeners enjoy um, podcasts who give show notes and show notes with links. So if I hear something of interest, um, I go to the show notes and I use Overcast. Overcast makes that very easy to go to the show notes, click a link, and it will usually open the link to a a new web page. And from that new web page, then I then open, uh, usually it's not a true, not in Safari, but like a web page in the, the web viewer in Overcast. Um, and then I will use Safari um, to the share sheet to save that to OmniFocus. And that just goes into my OmniFocus inbox, which I process through at the end of the day. And um, I'll see it and I'll be like, oh yeah. And then I'll put it wherever it's supposed to go. Yeah, the the trick for me, I mean, uh, usually if I'm if I'm walking or doing dishes, I will just stop the podcast when I hear something. I hear an app I want to try or a workflow I want to, you know, look at closer. I'll stop the podcast and I'll maybe add it to OmniFocus. Sometimes it belongs in Apple Notes, or I also use Apple's Basic Reminders app. Uh, I listen to a lot of the incomparable stuff, and those guys read so many books. I don't know how they read so many books, but they, you know they'll mention one that sounds like a good one to me. Like, oh, that might be a book I want to read. 
So I keep lists and reminders, books I want to read, videos I want to watch. So I'll go into there. So it, it depends on the on the context and, and what the content is, where it goes for me. Where I hit a problem is when I'm driving, because I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm driving. And I hear things that sound really great to me. If I'm in stop and go traffic, when I get to a red light, I use the drafts app because I use drafts on my watch as the complication. I feel like drafts is one of the best complications on the Apple watch because it does one thing. You press the button and you, and then it starts recording your voice and you talk and then it gets saved as a draft. So you can always process it later. You'll, you won't lose the data. If I'm driving on the highway, I don't do anything because I'm just too afraid I'm going to get in an accident. So um, that's where I lose. Uh, I've thought about things like, well, what if I put a little recorder in the car, but it doesn't happen often enough. Well, that, that's, that's when you can say, Hey Siri, remind, Oh, mm, sorry. Can't say that. Um, <laughs> Hey lady in the can or whatever, remind me of whatever. I, I wish it, it's just not quite there. Um, I've tried that. And the problem is, then I end up in a conversation with that lady while I'm driving down the highway and she's, she's just not quite there yet. My car um, has a Bluetooth connection to my, to my phone and it has external microphones. It has two of them, one over the passenger seat, one over the driver's seat, which you think would be really great. Whereas, and it's just not that great because it's got to have the microphone go into the radio, then over Bluetooth to the phone. Um, something that Apple could do to really help me would be to set a default setting that the microphone for Siri is the microphone in the iPhone itself. Cause usually my iPhone is, is upside down in one of my, um, in one of my cup holders on the center console. So it's close enough to me that I think that microphone would pick me up way better than the car microphone does, but you can switch that, but it doesn't stick. So the next question we have is from Dan, and apparently David has no weather, so this may be more for me, but he talks about lightning and surge protection, and he wants to know what kind of lightning surge protection do we use, and specifically what kind of, because, you know, APCs and universal power supplies and those things are, are pretty common. What do you use for lightning and surge protection on, like, data lines? Because those things are pretty easy when it comes to, you know, things you actually plug in, but what about Ethernet and and um in coax and those types of things. Yeah, I'm not the person to answer this question. Oh, you don't protect this stuff? This is I don't understand this. Oh, such I, such I just you know what? I am someday I'm going to be so screwed because I don't do any of this stuff and you will laugh at me. I mean, Dave Hamilton from Massachusetts once told me that he has like a an office that's separated from his house and he has a line underground that goes between mm -hmm. the two buildings. And that line gets hit by lightning that the lightning gets. Yes. It just, I can't remember. Honestly, it's probably been a year since I've heard lightning at my house. You, mm, you're asking for trouble. We just don't get it here. Uh, okay. So I do, I do two things. So first off, we, we talked about it commonly. I, I have APCs. Um, I, that's just the brand name that I like, but, but battery backups and surge protectors and get a good quality one. Don't get a cheap one. Don't get just a power strip. I get ones that have warranties, knock on wood. I've never had to use the warranty, but I plug everything that's important to me into those. Um, and I like the ones with battery backup for certain things. Um, you know, just because in Florida, we have a lot of power flickers where the power doesn't go off for an extended period of time, but you'll get a, like a, a draw and the power will flicker. And that can be, you know, even more harmful than, than something else. 
So that's it um, for, for everyday easy stuff. Now, you've also got to protect where stuff comes into your home. So what I do um, is I, I, I follow the source and I look and see where is everything coming into my home. And in, in my case, I have a coax cable that is bringing things into my home. And um, then that coax cable goes into my modem. And then I have one Ethernet cable that comes out of that modem that then goes into my network. So I have a single coax cable that is a point of entry into my home. And I protect that coax cable with a coax surge protector. Um, I picked up one on Amazon. I think I picked up this one because Dave Hamilton recommended it. Um, and Dave Hamilton's kind of the guru on those types of things. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the one that I have. Um, it is a T2 Network Technologies Lightning Surge Coax Protector. You know, there are a bunch of them. But that's the particular one I have. Um, and so I protect the coax line that comes into my house. And then I protect where it comes out of my cable modem because the coax is protected going into the cable modem. And then I protect where it comes out of the cable modem and is going into all of my network stuff. So if a surge gets out of the cable modem, it's going to fry the cable modem, but then I protect it where it's now going into my network. So I've got another layer of protection and I use an APC PNET protect surge protector. Um, So it will go, um, if it comes out of the cable modem, it will go through that first before it then goes into my network hub. And for a short period of time, things were so bad with with lightning and, and those types of things. I actually had a spare cable modem in a in a box on the shelf because I was just ready. I was just ready. Well, so. you know what? Now, see, now you got me feeling bad. I'm going to have to order something. This this thing these things are twenty bucks each. Go, you know, for less than fifty bucks, you're done. Yeah, I'll I'll get a couple. I'll get I'll get one for my iMac. Well, you don't see. I I think. And I'm not a, I'm not an expert at this. I got my information from Dave Hamilton. I think you just need to protect the. So you need an APC where for your iMac um, in terms of plugging it into power. Absolutely. If you don't have one, that's just foolish. I'll I'll send you a link to one of those. But then you need you need to protect where it comes into the house. Yeah, I'll have to look into this. But, but honestly, we just don't have. Wait, wait a minute. You don't you don't even have a surge protector on your on your computers. I do, but I have a surge protector, but it's not a very good one. You know, when you said don't get one connected to a power strip, I'm looking down. I've got one connected to my power strip. I think I have to get a better one. I, I'm just sitting here in disgust. Can you hear that? Can you hear that? <laughs> I'm I'm not saying anything, but okay. But we just, I've been to Florida. I get it. I mean, there's so much lightning in Florida. It's crazy. I didn't, you know, I saw more lightning in 10 minutes in Florida than I saw my entire life growing up in Southern California. But um, but I, I live in the foothills, so I have no excuse. So, Katie, just send me the one I'm supposed to buy. Just tell me what I'm yeah, supposed I'm, to buy. I'm going to put them in the show notes for you. You can t- you, When you're listening back to this podcast, you can use the tip we talked about above to save them to your OmniFocus list in your show notes. I, I will just buy them. Just tell me what to buy, Katie Floyd. Yes, I will. I will do that for you. Because I feel like at this point, now I have doomed myself. That There will be lightning like tonight, and, and my whole system will get fried. All right. Uh, next question we've got is from Jordan. This I, I mentioned this because I think it's kind of funny and really more sad. Um, Jordan says he purchased a brand new 128 gigabyte iPod Touch so that he could use it as a lossless music player. And he got it back from the Apple store and the battery was dead. And that's pretty uncommon. Usually things come from Apple with, you know, at least 75% battery or so. But, you know, this can happen. 
But, but the explanation is in the next sentence. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so he charged it up, and then he booted it up after a charge, and it was running iOS 8.4. So this thing had been sitting on the shelf for at least two years. Now, Jordan says that this might not necessarily be a bad thing because he kind of hates the iOS 10 music app, um, but he's he's worried about this this iPod Touch has obviously been on the shelf of the Apple Store for over two years, which should tell you something about how those are selling. Um, should he be worried about the battery on this device? Well, it hasn't been exercised much. We know that. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Came out of the factory. It emptied out. Um, and it's had its first cycle two years later when Jordan bought it. I um, I, I don't think I don't think he's got anything to worry about on the battery. I kind of think the opposite. I So he's got a warranty on it because his warranty doesn't start until he uses it, to the day he buys it. So I, I would keep a close eye on it. And I would say with any fishiness going on with the battery, I, I would definitely be filing something with Apple Care on that while you're still within your warranty. And, the, um, and just run it up and down a few times and see how long it lasts. I mean, that, I, mean I think you would be able to figure that out relatively quickly. Um, hopefully Apple at some point fixes the music app so he doesn't have to stay in iOS eight forever, but maybe that's okay with him. Well, see, I, that would be my next thing is I would not stay on iOS eight. I would go ahead and update it to iOS 10 because keep in mind, you've now got two years that you're missing of security updates. If nothing else, you're missing two years of security updates. I I would suck it up and, and upgrade it to iOS 10. Yeah, and he says, I'm only using this for the music app, and I, I guess what kind of data are you storing on it is a good question. Truly not connecting to anything. And I would also think if you're just using it for the music app, um, you know, Apple Music and some of this stuff has improved a lot in the last couple of years. So will you get all those features if you leave yourself in an old version of the operating system? I don't know, but I thought it was a funny email. So It was definitely a funny email we wanted to share with you. Uh, We got a question from Scott about starting a blog. Scott says he wants to start a blog that has uh, work-related posts for helping people like him uh, use Mac and start to use iPods, iPads. (laughs) See, now you got me talking about iPods. Um, Start to use iPads to do their daily jobs. Um, he wants to, to do this in part as an effort to justify him upgrading his 9.7 pro, uh, to the 10.5 or 12.9. Um, I, I understand Scott, I feel your pain. I'll tell you starting a blog is a hassle. So just, just buy yourself the, the new iPad and, and be done with it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but if, if you really want a blog, Scott has a couple of questions. Um, it's totally new to him. And he says, do I just create my own website or do I need to use something like WordPress or both? Uh, and what writing tools do you use? And so this is kind of a loaded question. I mean, we we can't tell you in a couple of minutes how how you create a blog. Have we done a show on this? I don't remember. I know we've done a show on WordPress. So if you go back in the archives and look, we've done a show on, on WordPress. You're, you're going to need a couple of things. The first thing, that, so the easiest thing to do is... Um, is, is to get one of these prepackaged solutions. And that can be something like Squarespace, full disclosure, they're a sponsor. Um, and, and that's kind of a one-stop shop. 
everything in one. You can get your domain name. You can create your website. You can do your blog. Um, Kelly Gamont made a very good point on the show that she was on last couple last month, I think, um, and said, you know, a really easy thing to do is, you know, if you don't want to worry about hosting your own thing and updating your own thing, um, go to WordPress.com and pay them. It's fairly inexpensive to get a WordPress.com site. Um, they will host it for you. They will take care of the updates and you can, um, you can either buy a domain, I think from them, or you can buy a domain from a third party service like hover and, and connect it up. But you are going to need, um, some kind of place to, to host the site, i.e. where, where are you going to publish this to and what platform are you going to use? And then you're probably going to want your, your domain name. Um, I, I don't know if I would recommend at this point doing something like Tumblr or anything like that. I, I really wouldn't recommend doing Tumblr. Yeah, I, I think one one point I would make, and and Katie's already said Squarespace is a sponsor. Both of us use it. I used it before they were sponsor, and I think Katie did too. Um, but whichever one you pick, if you're starting a new blog about something that's something other than how to make a blog, then I think you should pick a service that does most of the heavy lifting for you. Because if you want to write a blog about using the iPad, then you don't want to be spending your time figuring out how to run blogs. You want to just write content and publish it. So... Find a system, look at, almost all of them have trials, you know, take a tr two week trial and as many as you think are relevant and find which one is easy for you to work with and one that doesn't take a lot of your time to manage that. I think that's the big deal because it, like Katie said at the beginning, it's hard doing these blogs. And frankly, um, you know, this is, these are rough times for people who run blogs because advertisers aren't sure whether they want to advertise on them anymore. And and all these super big websites are kind of taking over a lot of that stuff. So if you want to do it, don't give yourself extra work. You know, pick a system that's easy to use so you can just spend your time writing about the iPad. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, 1Password. Now, you may have heard, it's been on the web a little bit recently, that 1Password offers a membership program. And this can be for individual users. And the membership program is really the way that you get the family and teams membership. Uh, I have been using 1Password as an individual for years. In fact, I've been using 1Password, I think, before they had all the vowels in their name. That's how long I've been using 1Password. And I recently switched over from the individual plan where I brought my own syncing uh, over to the 1Password membership. And I tell you, I have never been happier. Number one, because I love supporting a company that makes a product that is probably the most important product that I use for syncing and securing all of my data. And number two, because a 1Password membership brings a whole lot of additional features with it. Probably the biggest benefit of a 1Password membership is that you know that the team that made 1Password, the app that you're using all the time, also made the sync service. So you know that everything is just going to work together. You don't have to worry about conflicts or maybe your sync service doesn't quite work well or maybe there's an incompatibility or all kinds of things. You also know that you're going to get access to all of their award-winning apps because they're included with the membership plan, whether it's for Mac, Windows, iOS, or Android. You get access to all of your information synced up to the cloud service, which means you can access it online, but don't worry, you can access it offline too. It's always available on all your apps and everything just syncs automatically in the background and all of your app upgrades are included. You always know you've got the latest version of all the apps with all of the great features like the new travel mode is included in the 1Password membership program. 
And memberships are affordable. They start at just $2.99 per month for an individual or $4.99 per month for family plans. And family plans allow you to bring up to five members of your family for $4.99. And you can add more for just a dollar each. It's a pretty amazing deal when you think about it. But I know that there's been some confusion and concern about the standalone vault. So head over to OnePassword.com and read the blog post by Dave, who is the founder and developer over at OnePassword, who explains to you exactly what's going on with the OnePassword individual vaults and that you don't need to worry about OnePassword password for Mac, as it will continue to support the standalone vaults in version 7, just like version 6 does today. So learn more over at OnePassword.com, and thanks OnePassword for your continued support of the show. Uh, Dan wrote in with a great question. How much iMac do I buy? All the iMac. Well, you buy all yeah, the that's iMac. that's what I was going to say. All the iMacs. You want all the iMacs, Dan. So to explain further, he's got a 2009 20.5, 20.5 inch iMac that uh, he's been waiting to upgrade and he's leaning towards the 27 because the 21 looks small. He loves the idea of more screen space and it would fit, but uh, it also would look huge. Is there any reason you'd advise someone not to get the 27? And the answer is no. <laughs> I love this 27 inch iMac. Um, I went to a friend's house who has multiple monitors and, uh, and his monitor, I think he had a, about a 20 inch screen. It was not an iMac. It was a PC, but he's got all these screens and these, and I just love having one nice big 27 inch screen that can work with Apple spaces and stuff. You can flip them around. I, I feel very little need to have more monitor than 27, but if you took 27 away, it'd be hard. Um, how about you, Katie? Where do you stand on the 27 inch versus 21 inch size? I would say unless you are really space constrained, i.e. on a small desk or you've got your Mac like in a cabinet or something where you can't fit 27, get the 27 because um, you can you can never go bigger um, after you buy it. I, I, I would if, if you're even considering the 27 and if that's an option, I would say get the 27. Yeah. And if, and if you, you think it's going to be huge on your desk, you'll get used to it. Yeah. You, you know, will. I thought I thought it was huge when I first brought it home. And now um, I'm completely, I don't think about that anymore. And it's so great being able to put two documents on the screen at one time and read them both. It's great. Now, his second question is about drive size. He said he's taken apart his current iMac and upgraded several things in it, but he won't have the heart to do that with a new iMac. He wants to get a one terabyte SSD, but that's going to cost him an extra 700 bucks, which seems like overkill. What are your thoughts on running an external SSD as the operating system for the new iMac? He says he's running his current iMac this way, and the cost of a one terabyte drive on Mac sales as an external drive is around three fifty, which is considerably less. I, I hate how much Apple charges uh, for these SSDs. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's somebody sent me a um, uh, one of our listeners has bought a new one of the new iMacs with two terabyte SSD, and it has something like I think it was like fourteen hundred dollars or something extra he paid to get that. Um, I, I, I wrote back Dan, I, I felt like the better solution than trying to run the operating system on an external SSD because you have bottlenecks when you do that. It just, the internal stuff runs so much faster is get the biggest SSD internally that makes sense that you can afford. It doesn't have to be one terabyte and then just get a really big, um, external drive and it could be SSD, but I don't think it even needs to be. I have, um, Velcro to the bottom of my desk as I sit here is a Western digital drive. I think it's a four terabyte drive that's just plugged into the iMac with the, um, with USB, USB three. And, um, it works great. Like I put a bunch of iTunes stuff on there. I put, you know, movies, I put even 
when I'm working on big screencast projects and I have massive assets and I load up my SSD, I just start putting stuff on there and it's fine. But having the internal operating system, the apps, and just kind of the, the key components run on that internal SSD make it still feel pretty fast. Uh, another option is the Fusion Drive, you know, which kind of does that internally. Yeah, I, I think I would lean more towards your solution, David, is 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 buy the biggest SSD he can. If if the 500 gig is an option, do that. That iMac's not going to go anywhere. You know, it's going to be sitting on the desk. It's not going to be that big of a deal to add external storage to it for, you know, movies or, or off-site projects. And, and for the amount of money that you save probably going from the other, you could buy a nice NAS or you could buy a really a couple of really nice external hard drives. And who knows, if, if you if you really outgrow it a couple of years from now, you can pay an Apple authorized service provider, probably not Apple, um, but you can pay somebody else who's a professional to upgrade that SSD for you later. But I do wish Apple charged less so people didn't have to make those compromises because it, it is quite expensive. It is. It's it's really ridiculous. Um and and they make it so hard to upgrade. I I know you can. Don't don't write me. You you always write me and say how easy it is to upgrade. It's it's very daunting to upgrade the SSD on an iMac, especially a brand new one. It's just very daunting to open the iMac. You got to suction cup the the glass off, and then I feel like when you open those things, you just never know if you're going to get them put back together right, or if they're going to get dust underneath there. It's I don't know. I'm I'm not a big fan of those upgrades. The only thing you can do on the iMacs these days, as far as I know, easily is is upgrade RAM, which is another thing. I guess, Dan, we should tell you, don't buy a lot of RAM from Apple because they're, for the longest time, Apple overcharged RAM. Then for a short little respite, they were charging reasonable prices for RAM. And it feels like they've got back on the expensive RAM train because RAM is quite expensive from Apple now. You can buy the same stuff from Mac sales and some of the other reputable vendors. And you can upgrade that yourself very easily. Well, and but the caveat is it, the although the RAM is not soldered in on the 21 inch, the doors for easy access are not on the 21 inch. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, but but we're assuming Dan's gonna get the 27 inch. We've sold them on the 27. But, but I want to say that for anybody else who's out there listening. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, while we're on the subject of iMacs, um, David has a question. He's gone ahead. He's bought the 2017 27-inch 5K iMac. Uh, he's made that leap, um, and he is using that to replace a, an older 2011 iMac. And he's thought about selling it, but because it's so old, it's it's not worth a ton anymore. And so he wants to know what his options are for repurposing it as a server of some sort or another creative use. Now, we did an entire show um, on repurposing old Macs and things that you can do with that. If you go search our archives, which you can find at uh, relay.fm slash MPU, there's a link to archives. Uh, just just search for home server or old Mac, and, and you'll find a couple of shows on that topic. I will tell you, it's a little harder to do with an iMac just because you're, you're dealing with size. Because... Um, even though a 2011 iMac is probably going to be smaller, it's probably going to be 21 or 24 inches. You still got to have somewhere to put it. Um, but you can, you can, you can make it a Plex server. You can make it a probably my favorite way of repurposing a, an old Mac like this, and, and we did it for years. Um, is handing it down to someone who's maybe a little less tech savvy. If if there's a the kid in your life, or if there's um, uh, we we gave my dad's old iMac to my grandfather. And he got years and years and years of enjoyment out of it. He absolutely loved it. So um, that was a great move for us. 
Yeah, my mother-in-law is using a white plastic iMac. That's how old it is. It was at once in the Sparks house, and we gave it to her, and she she loves it. Still plugs along. I don't do any software upgrades on it anymore. It's long past that. But she gets on Safari, and she does her email, and everything. everybody's happy. Um, and, and if you can, if you can't find a good reason to, to repurpose it, then go ahead and sell it. Um, you know, David said he got an offer from Gazelle and he can pocket several hundred dollars from that, you know, selling it today, you'll get the best money you ever will get out of it. It will only go down in value. And, you know, you can take that 500 bucks and put it towards an iPhone, uh, later this, this fall or put it towards an iPad or put it towards drives or storage. Don't, don't just let it sit in the closet and do nothing. Every time I go to my mother-in-law's house and I see the keyboard for that plastic iMac, it just makes me cringe. Do you remember the keyboard for that? Yes, and let me let me tell you my secret to that because they're it's they're, clear. Yeah, it's oh, still the clear the problem. It's clear, so all the the gook in your fingers and your hair and everything you can see it all. It's a disgusting keyboard. Yeah, so buy a different keyboard. Um, you can do that. I like the Logitech keyboard, but I have a couple of people in my family who have external keyboards. And every time I sit down at their iMac, it is absolutely disgusting. I, I do not know what they do with their keyboards, but it is the grossest thing I've ever seen. So what I do is I pick up the keyboard and I bang it on the table a little bit and, you know, shake it upside down and, you know, do that thing to get all the, the cruft out of it. Um, and then I get, uh, are you familiar? I'm sure you're with like these, uh, the Lysol wipes that, um, or Clorox wipes. Um, the, the ones with the, I think it's the purple cap have a little scrubby on one side and they're flat on the other. Those are the best ones. Those are the ones that I buy. So I turn all the power off to the keyboard. Don't Make sure it's not too wet. And then I get the scrubby side, and I really go at it. Just to sit at their keyboard? Yes, just to make sure it dries out completely. They're like, how long have you been back there? I'm like, oh, your keyboard's drying before I can use it. Yeah. So when my keyboard gets dry, I just invite you over. Yeah, there you go. I'll take care of it for you. Be, be careful, obviously, because it's liquid. You don't want to get it too damp. Well, some people, I, I know this goes way back, but that, that old iMac with the uh, white plastic keyboard, I used to read articles about people who put them don't, in the dishwasher. Don't, don't do that. Just buy a new <laughs> keyboard. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> okay. Uh, Rob wrote in about OCR accuracy. He says, you've mentioned many times that your documents have OCR performed on them, but I don't believe I've ever heard you talk about the accuracy. How accurate do you consider your OCR results? of all the hardware and software products you use and how important is the accuracy to you? Um, I can tell you when I first started doing optical character recognition, this is a long time ago when it was first a thing, it was really a pain in the neck. It, the software would actually go through and manually, I mean, the computers were really old. The software wasn't that smart. So it would go through and analyze the document and show you the words as it was doing it and say, Oh, I don't understand what this word is. Could you please tell me? And we used to, in my old office, we used to have a secretary that would go through and kind of babysit the OCR software as we put it through. Um, these days, um, one of the great things we have about modern technology is it is super fast and it's, it's pretty accurate. It's accurate enough that I don't routinely bump into problems with it not finding things. Yes, but I, I will tell you, and this is a point that that Rob brings up a little later is Rob mentions that he bought a PDF scanning app from the Mac app store and it has built in OCR. And he says that he find the results are disappointing. I will tell you that things with OCR I've noticed is one is garbage in garbage out. Um, 
and that you are traditionally always going to get better results with a true scanner than you are with one of these apps. And these apps can do amazing things, but I get the best OCR results when I run something through my ScanSnap because it's a controlled environment. You're getting a nice clean scan. It's, it's flattening as it goes through. Um, uh, you know, the having a good quality document that you're scanning on a high quality scanner is going to make a world of difference when it comes to OCR accuracy. If you're snapping a picture of something on, with your iPhone with an app, even if it's a good app, um, you know, in weird lighting conditions with weird shadows, I think your OCR is going to be haphazard. Um, and I think these apps do the best they can with what they have. And I think it's amazing that they do as well as they do. But um, I think you're you're not going to get the OCR accuracy ever with one of these apps that you're going to, going to get in a more controlled environment such as a scanner. Yeah, and and not all apps are created equal on this. Um, that's that's true. And the fact that you and I both use scan snaps, we're kind of spoiled on that because they use the um, boy, it's on the tip of my Abby. tongue. What's that come? Yeah, yeah, they they are some of the best software for this. And uh, that's the the engine they use, so that always makes it good. Even that being said, it's not perfect. After I got the email, I actually went in and started fiddling around. You know where I notice problems with scanning is when I'm building Hazel rules. We t- you know we talked about this on on an episode they haven't show. heard yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sometimes you'll pull uh, OCR, you'll pull text out of a document as you're current, trying to create a, a Hazel rule. And you'll see that it it added an extra space or some problem. So th- they're still out there, but Largely, it's not an issue for me. I mean, the big issue for me with OCR is if I've got a folder full of documents and I say, give me every document in this folder that has the word sump pump in it, and it will go through and find them. And it does a pretty darn good job. Way better than the old days where we had to go through and thumb through them and just read every document to find it. Well, I think that does it for the general questions. We got some feedback on our you must have utilities show. Um, uh JF wrote in and talked about some of his favorite features in Pathfinder. Uh, he said, number one, regular expressions. Pathfinder's rename feature includes the ability to use regular expressions, so you can build multi-step renaming workflows and save them. Number two, it has a dual-pane browser, um, which makes it a breeze to copy, paste, and move things. So we're seeing some of that on the iPad now. Uh, and number three, it has a terminal shelf, which is a great feature that gets you on the command line quickly. So it, we had a show about Pathfinder. I'm not sure if we talked about any of these features in that show or not, but Pathfinder might be something to take a look at. Yeah, well, the dual pane is different from iOS 11 dual pane. In this case, it's dual panes of the of the browser. So you can have on, on one side, you can have uh, folder A and folder B on the next folder and easily put stuff over. Finder kind of does that now, but not not as well as Pathfinder does. We also heard from Rich about Text Tool. Uh, we talked about um, the text, the app Text Soap, which is really useful for cleaning up text on your um, on your app. Uh, he talked about there's a tool on iOS called Text Tool. He says it doesn't look as powerful as Text Soap, but it has uh, callbacks for um, iOS, which makes it really helpful. And there's a version two of it out. I I use Text Tool. I've had it for years, and I keep it in my bag. I don't know how I missed that they came out with a second version. I went ahead and purchased the new version. And I do like it, and I'm going to write about that at Max Barkey at some point. But it's a it's a great tool on iOS. So when you get you know a document that has an extra carriage return at every line, or or you know some of the usual text shenanigans you run into, 
You can fix that on your iPad now with text tool. That's one word, T-E-X-T, I'm sorry, T-E-X-T-T-O-O-L. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Audible. Go to audible.com slash MPU to find out more and start your free trial today. I have to admit, I always get a little excited when Audible sponsors the Mac Power Users. I've been a subscriber of Audible for a long time. If I look at my Audible account, there are a lot of books in there that I've bought over the years. Uh, Audible is unmatched in giving you audio content. They've got thrilling novels to, to fascinating nonfiction to content from newspapers and magazines. If you want it, Audible has got it. Whether you're looking to add a little more excitement to your commute or you're finding a way to make the laundry more bearable, you need to look no further than Audible. If you're listening to Mac Power users, you get the idea of Audible content. Audible brings you all of those books and all of that news just into your ears. If you find a great audiobook to help you fill the time, you'll be looking for excuses to wash some dishes and vacuum the floor. Okay, so here's my favorite part of this ad read where I get to tell you some of my favorite Audible books. I generally listen to fiction in Audible because I don't have time to read it while I'm sitting down, but when I'm driving, it's great to hear a great story. Uh, there's one author that I really like. His name is Jasper Ford, uh, spelled with two Fs. It's a pseudonym, and he's written a lot of different series of books, but the ones I want to recommend are The Chronicles of Kazam, K-A-Z-A-M, and it starts with The Last Dragon Slayer. It tells the story of Jennifer Strange, who runs a magical agency where they fix clogged drains with magic. She's only 15 years old. She's got this great pet. It's called a Quirk Beast, and it's one-tenth Labrador, six-tenths Velociraptor, and three-tenths Kitchen Food Blender. I think the book is technically titled Young Adult Fiction, but man, I enjoyed reading it. And uh, I read it a few years ago with my daughter, who was 12 at the time. And Jasper Ford writes with all these kind of funny inside jokes that go by really quickly. And my daughter and I, to this day, still have a bunch of inside jokes from us that we got from reading this series of books together. And by I say reading, we listen to them all. The woman who narrates these books does a great job of bringing the characters to life. They're great books, and I highly recommend them, but if that's not your thing, that's okay. Audible has something for you. Maybe it's a biography or a book about science. Doesn't matter. They've got it all. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn your chores into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com MPU to find out more and start your trial today. Thanks, Audible, for their support of the show. Uh, we talked about home tech uh, since the last time we did a feedback show. We got a bunch of feedback on that. Chris wrote in, he says, avoid accidentally turning off the power switch. He says, you mentioned not being able to turn on your hue lights because someone had turned it off with the switch. You know, faced with a similar problem, he installed childproof light switches, uh, guards, which keep you from accidentally or absentmindedly turning off the switches. And gave us a link in uh, Amazon. We'll put that up. They, there's a, a variety of vendors that make these little plastic things that screw on top of a light switch that don't let you turn it off or on. Um, I, uh, I looked at that. See, the problem is uh, it's not looking at if I, if I tell my wife I'm child proofing the house from her, <laughs> I'll be sleeping in the doghouse. It might not go over so well. Yeah. Um, I understand it. I mean, the tech stuff is great. Um, but you know, that you can turn the things off and on automatically. Like one of the rules I have is, you know, using the automatic, uh, former sponsor of the show, but it knows when my car gets home. So when my car gets home, the entry hall light turns on, which is great. But if they turn the switch off at the switch that the rule doesn't run, 
Um, I'm looking at there's some there's some great vendors now making some HomeKit friendly light switches that you can turn that you can reinstall over the existing dumb switches. Um, and I'm going to probably install some of those by the time we talk about home technology again, and I'll have some thoughts on it. Cause then my family could turn the switches off and on at will without screwing up rules. And, um, I just have to figure out which ones work. And we've got a, a really smart guest lined up on this, who does this for a living. And, uh, we'll have a lot more on this one as, as I figure it out. Well, in fact, Jeff has some suggestions for you. If you look at our next comment. Um, Jeff agrees that turning, keeping the power on can be a pain for things like Q bulbs and these smart light bulbs, and particularly in situations where you're dealing with less tech-savvy people or maybe people who don't really know your house, um, if it's you know guests or kids or things like that. Um, Jeff points out that he's started to use a whole line of products from Leviton, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, and they have a series of switches. He just says some are HomeKit compatible, some are Google Home compatible, some are Amazon compatible. Make sure you get the right type. And he points out that the switches are fairly easy to install, but it do they do require that you have a neutral wire. Um, and that's... Um, um, pretty common in newer houses, but maybe not so much in older houses. So you'll want to check and make sure, and also make sure that you get the right type for the, the the type of switch that you have. So for example, if it's just a single switch and one switch controls that light, then that's one thing. But if you have multiple switches that control the same set of lights, then you have to get a three-way uh, switch. And that's a, a slightly more expensive, but you just have to make sure that you get the right type of switch. Um, I've installed similar ones before, but it's not too bad. Leviton or which which vendor? Leviton. Uh, I, I've installed these types of switches before, and they're not bad. Usually, it's three wires. It's not hard to install. Um, there's another company called Kugeek, K O O G E E K, but Leviton is from everyone I'm talking to is the one that you should be doing. So I, I've been looking at them, and they sell them even at Home Depot. So um, I'm just figuring out. I think what I'm going to do is end up buying some at Home Depot, which has a pretty easy return policy, and they're local and just run some tests to see how they work. But ideally what I would like is something where my wife and kids can turn the lights off and on with the switch like they've always done. And if they want to go the geek route, they can, but they don't have to. And I can start really going crazy with, you know, if this, then that rules and other things to automate the house better and be able to rely on them working. So Steve had a question for me, and I don't know if you have any any advice, David. He said, Katie, I know you just recently sold your house. I'm curious of how you secured your tech while it was on the market. I'm going through something similar. Any advice? Um, well, it, it I will tell you that uh, I'm a big fan of out of sight, out of mind. I was very conscientious knowing that for the time that my house was on the market, that people were going to be in it. And so I made a point to either take my iPad with me or take my Mac with me or, you know, put them away so that they were out of sight and or locked up somewhere or put in drawers somewhere or just not where someone could easily grab them. I wasn't quite as concerned because I always had a realtor going through the house with someone. So I wasn't concerned about bigger things disappearing. I guess it's possible that someone could pocket little things. So I was more worried about little things, but I wasn't super concerned because, you know, this was someone who was going through with a realtor. Um, I do have a couple of cameras in my house and um, I I thought about those, but that kind of got weird because 
um, I, I also wanted to be very cognizant that I was inviting people into my home to look at my house. And I had an incentive. I was incentivized for them to stay as long as possible, for them to be as comfortable as possible, and for them to feel like they could speak openly in the house without them feeling like I was spying on them. Because what you want when you're selling your house is you want people to come in. You want them to talk freely about your house. You want them to enjoy your house and like your house. And there was a concern that, you know, having a couple of cameras in the house, that people were going to feel like I was listening in on them, which I was not, um, or, you know, spying on them or something like that. So that that was kind of a little little weird. And um, so that, you know, I just basically what I did is I, I, I took anything that was small or anything that was easily pocketable or grabbable and, and, and put it away. Yeah. The, the other thing I would think about is maybe if you have network attached storage, if there's you know, if you're concerned about that at all, to take some steps, even just maybe power it all down, you know, on days that you're going to have a bunch of visitors. Yeah. I mean, everything was very, um, was locked down anyway. The Wi-Fi was locked down. All of my drives were encrypted. So if anybody like picked up a hard drive or something and took it, it was all encrypted. And I didn't have any of that stuff out. So I, I had lock, I, my desk drawer, I had stuff in the desk drawer and that had a lock on it and those were locked. So, um, you know, I think I, I think when you're touring someone's house, and I, I hope that there's certain etiquette there. I mean, it's one thing to open closets and look at stuff like that. It's another thing to go into people's desk drawers, but we'll see. Mine were locked. Uh, we we had Teddy Sveronos on the show again, and uh, we heard from Bart, and he said he's a high school teacher, and he'd love to be able to do some of the things Teddy was doing, uh, but he's got problems with connectivity in his classroom. He says, is there a way to set up the Apple TV, MacBook Pro, and iPad? having them mirror each other without Wi-Fi, And uh, would you need Wi-Fi to set all this up? And my guess is he's got the problem where he's, you know, that, that we heard about earlier in the show where you've got a lockdown network and it's, a, it's really hard to get things to connect to each other. Um, and I would suggest, I sent him an email on this and I want to talk to him more, but I think you can get yourself rolling on this stuff for a relatively small amount of money. Uh, you need an Apple TV and not even, frankly, the most current one. <laughs> I think even this is the last generation would probably work good enough for this. And and you need your own little Wi-Fi network. And one of the things about the Airport Express people don't realize is it creates a Wi-Fi network whether or not it's connected to the Internet. Um, I know a lot of lawyers that do this in courtrooms where they just create a little local network of Wi-Fi. And it doesn't have an Internet connection. It doesn't matter. All they want to do is make sure that when they turn the iPad on, that both the iPad and the Apple TV are on the same little Wi-Fi network and they can talk to each other fine. Um, I've done this when I've gone to give presentations where I show up with an Apple TV, an Airport Express, and a um, and an, and a device, and it's great. I make my own little network. One of the tricks is you make a password for that network. You don't want to make it open or other people will try to connect their devices to your Apple TV and uh, in high school, that could be really bad to be on what the kids put on the screen. Um, but the uh, but it's not that difficult. Uh, it, it does take a little investment of money. So I got one better for you. Okay. Did, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because something may have changed. I have not done this in a while. But did you know that ever since the third generation Rev A, so there was a, you know how Apple will sometimes do stealth updates to to products kind of like mid mid product cycle ever since the third generation That's, I know what you're about to say rev a apple yeah. tv you can do a peer-to-peer -peer connection without wi-fi 
from your iOS device to the Apple TV. At that time, you had to have iOS 8, and you have to have a third-gen Apple TV Rev A. I assume, and that's what I'm saying, I assume, so someone will tell me if I'm wrong, that you that they have not taken this away. Um, but what you need to do is you need to plug in your Apple TV to a projector like with HDMI like you normally would. Um, make sure you've got updated software. Um, you know, make sure everything is, is rebooted. Um, and then you go to make sure that you have Bluetooth enabled on both the um, the iOS device that you're projecting to as well as the Apple TV because what this does is it does it over Bluetooth. Um, and then you should be able to connect via airplane that way. You know, I should I forgot entirely about that because I solved this problem with the Airport Express. Now, I don't know that that would solve this problem with the MacBook Pro, though. I don't think the MacBook Pro can push onto the Apple TV that way. I don't know if it can or not. And I should stress that... This does not give you connectivity for purposes of streaming videos and things like that. It just gets you on the Apple TV for purposes of AirPlay. Yeah, and, and my problem, my um, my solution had the same problem. Uh, you could, if you were going from an iPad and it's got a cellular connection, you could broadcast through that little network using the cellular connection to get the video onto your iPad, and then the the little wireless connection to get it onto the. Um, to the Apple TV. Mm, probably wouldn't rely on that, but you could. I've done it. It works. Uh, Robert had a question about SugarSync. He said, have you evaluated SugarSync and do you have any opinion of using it um, over um, another app? He said, you made reference to ChronoSync in a recent podcast. Uh, he downloaded the trial and it appears that ChronoSync and ChronoSync Agent can almost replace Carbon Copy Cloner and SugarSync for him. I will tell him I used SugarSync years ago when it first came out um, and, and dropped it. Was was not a long-term plan of it, especially when they when they moved to different pricing models. I love Carbon uh, uh, ChronoSync. I love Carbon Copy Cloner. I have licenses to both. I use them for different things. Al although I think ChronoSync could do a lot of things that Carbon Copy that I use Carbon Copy Cloner for. Um, I just, I, I, I kind of, I, I have different functions for those different types of things, but I like having ChronoSync in my toolbox for sure. As, to me, ChronoSync is, or, or um, SuperDuper are apps that are, they make clones of your drive and it's a great thing to be able to have a clone. Now you mean Carbon Copy Cloner and SuperDuper? Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> so many, so many words thrown around here uh, where ChronoSync is, is better at saying, okay, I've got this folder of files and I want to every month go in and copy any new files over to the backup file. I don't want to recopy the whole thing. I just want to get the, the diff files. Or if you actually want to sync files between two different uh, devices, uh, ChronoSync to me was much bigger deal before the cloud sync stuff came into play than it is now. Now, SugarSync is a cloud sync service. I was a little, I'm not sure I entirely got Robert's point here because SugarSync for me is more of a Dropbox competitor than a ChronoSync competitor. But I haven't used it in years either, and um, I, d I doubt I will. All right. Um, we got some recommendations for um, third-party keyboards um, from, from listeners. Uh, Brad wrote in to talk about WordFlow. It is made by Microsoft. And what Brad uses this for more than anything is he uses it for one-handed typing, which is really nice. Uh, from time to time, you only have one hand free on, on the iPod. Uh, oh gosh, now I'm talking all about the iPods ever since we talked about it very early in the show. You only have 
one hand free on the iPhone um, if you're tending to kids or if you're doing something else. Um, And so Wordflow makes it easy to do that. And then John wrote in to talk about the MyScript stylus. Um, which is the easy way to um, able you to capture text again with just one hand. And I think it will do some other things for that. So um, those are, those are two uh, keyboard replacement apps or uh, that, that maybe are worth checking out. Yeah. My script stylus, you usually use your Apple pencil just to write across the bottom of the screen. Like um, uh, can't you can't use your Apple pencil on the iPhone though. Oh, that's right. That's right. Unless you know something we don't. I never thought of using my script stylus on the phone. This episode of Mac Power Users is sponsored in part by Setapp. You can go to setapp.com, that's S-E-T-A-P-P.com to learn more, sign up, and get your Mac equipped. So Setapp is the first subscription service for Mac applications. It gives you nearly 100 quality applications in a single sign-up. It turns your Mac into a powerhouse with tools for all kinds of daily tasks, from photo editing to budget planning. Not to mention they have a collection of massively popular applications like Clean My Mac, Ulysses, Timing, Capto, Xmine, and the list keeps growing. Setapp costs just $9.99 a month, or sign up for an annual plan and you can get a month for free. Now, you may have noticed a couple of weeks ago, we did a show all about utilities. We've gotten some great feedback about that episode, and so many of the utilities that we recommended on that show, guess where they came from? Well, they came from Setapp, and it's a great way to get exposed to all kinds of great apps that you might have never known about because you can't possibly buy every app out there. Well, Setapp gives you access to nearly 100 great applications, many of which you may have never even thought to try, and you may just end up loving them. So here's what you do. You go to setapp.com, S-E-T-A-P-P.com. You can learn more, you can sign up, and learn about some of the best software that's out there by some of the most amazing Mac developers. And by the way, we really like the guys who make Setapp because they sponsored our awesome MPU meetup back in March. So go check it out. Our thanks to Setapp for being a longtime supporter of Mac Power users. All right. Audio media management show. This goes way back to May. Um, we talked about Sonos and what we liked about, it, didn't like about it. And Jason wrote in about air Sonos and, um, you know, the idea of Sonos and airplay. He discovered an app that allows you to airplay audio to your Sonos speaker with that extra, uh, hardware called air Sonos. It requires a Mac that's running 24 seven. So you got to have like that extra iMac we were talking about earlier in the show. Maybe that's your air Sonos server. Um, but, and that wouldn't be a problem for me either. I have an iMac and it runs a server that finds your network Sonos devices and allows you to send audio via airplay. Um, and then once you use the airplay technology, your speaker will show up in airplay, just like a regular airplay device. So like in iTunes or whatever, you can just drive music straight over to Sonos. Uh, He says there's a delay once you enable it using airplay and it works 80% of the time. That's the part of this email that I didn't like. 20% 20% of the time failure is not good. But let me back up. Can't you connect a, a, an airport express to your Sonos and boom, this is done? Yeah, but you know, some people don't want to buy extra hardware. I, I know, but isn't an airport express now fairly inexpensive and it works more than 80% of the time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just asking. But not everybody wants to do that. If you have an extra, you know, if you want to do it with a software solution, it's kind of a hack, but I, I, I appreciate the effort. Uh, I'll say for me with Sonos, 
and Apple Music, it's kind of changed the way everything works for me now. All of my music is organized into playlists that I've developed in, in Apple Music. And the Sonos app sees all those playlists. So I can take any device in my house and access and play one of the playlists in Sonos. It doesn't really have voice support yet uh, because it's inside the Sonos app. But other than that, it works fine. And I'm pretty happy. I mean, I'm hearing everybody talk about, you know, Apple's new speaker, which sounds pretty awesome. And it'd be great to have Siri in a speaker, but the, um, but just to, for the purpose of playing music, I don't know that I, I need it because I I'm fine with Sonos. We got a, a comment from, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this. Um, Mateus in Poland who wanted to let us know that, uh, we talked about the problem in our show with Charles Perry about having, how do you know what fonts are installed on a computer? If you have to run a, a PowerPoint or, or keynote presentation, if you take someone to some, a slides or set aside someone else's computer, is it going to work? Do they have your fonts? Is everything going to look good? Uh, there is software called presentationfontembedder.com, which claims to embed fonts into PowerPoint presentations. Not, not necessarily a solution for keynote, but if that's something you need, there you go. Uh, we heard uh, from Hinati. We put all our names at the end. I hope I got your name right. Sorry if I didn't. Um, uh, on on macOS clipboard managers, he says he tried many of the free apps, but all of them are not powerful enough for him, and uh, or just have a horrible UI. So he started looking around for something uh, for great, and he did find the uh, the top three: Paste Two, uh, Paste Bot Two, and Copy Him. Copy with the hyphen between the e, uh, copy and M paste. And in my opinion, but would be great to hear from someone else's thoughts on this topic. We just talked about it uh, recently on our favorite utilities. And um, I, I talked about clips, but the, um, but these are three more. So paste two, pastebot two and copy them. I like pastebot originally on iOS, but I have not gone to it since they came to Mac OS because I'm so happy with, with copied. I'm sorry. My current solutions is copied. Did, did that did that uh, utility show um, make you interested in any of these things at all, Katie? I know you were kind of thinking about playing with them after that show. Mm, no, sorry. <laughs> well, if you if you don't have the itch, then don't scratch it. Yeah, okay. I just I just don't really have a need for these. Um, I, I, what I use I use LaunchBar for 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 kind of going back briefly in my clipboard and. For me, yeah. I think the big difference is that as I do more and more work on iPad. I want to access on my Mac the stuff I had clipped on my iPad or vice versa. And, you know, Apple says that's supposed to work, but then they never said it again. They're like, oh, yeah, it's supposed to work. Mm. Well, no, the way Apple implemented it is is very Apple. It's not, you know, there's no bells or, I mean, there's no buttons to push. It just happens. Sometimes. But there's a time limit, and it's only the most recent copied item. It's not like a history. And it doesn't work well. Yeah, it doesn't work that well. That I think that is a good summary of that feature. I wouldn't rely on it. Yeah. Um, Larry wrote in to tell us about a, a liquid text alternative. Um, he likes Margin Notes Plus, which is he says has similar uh, functionality to liquid text with the added feature of also having a Mac OS version. So there you go. I'm going to try it. Um, because I, I I really like that feature and that idea of being able to manage PDFs in a way where you can compress and, and get notes. So I, I made a note of this, Larry. I'm going to try it out. You may hear about it on a future show. 
Uh, we also heard from Brian about organizing your expenses and revenues beyond DevonThink. He started using DevonThink Pro and is slowly, iteratively setting up a structure for receipts for his business. He says, DevonThink looks like it will do a great job of sorting the PDF images of my receipts so they're searchable, but when it comes tax time, what do you do? He usually prepares a spreadsheet reconciled with his receipts, bank statements, and credit card statements for his accountant instead of sending them in a virtual shoebox. Um, it has to be an easier way to do this on a more regular basis than once a year and less manually. Um, I solved this problem with Hazel and a shared Dropbox folder. Uh, my Hazel rule, anytime something's identified as an expense uh, for the business, um, it, it's done on a name. I, I use Hazel looking at the... Um, I, I run a text expander snippet that names the file as I go through and search it. Uh, Katie talked earlier about a text expander, a um, Hazel rule to automatically file them, but I like to actually go through and review them. And so there's some magic sauce in the name of the file that Hazel sees, and then it puts a copy in the relevant places for my files, but it also makes an additional copy and puts it into a shared Dropbox folder for the accountant. And then it sorts it into subfolders based on month. So uh, Hazel has the ability to create a subfolder that will say 2017-07, and anything that comes in July of 2017 goes into that folder. And, um, you know, one of the ways I'm using people on the outside to help me manage my day-to-day business is I pay my, my accountant to review that folder and do whatever it is she needs to do with that stuff as it comes in. And uh, she, I think she has her own spreadsheet and, and things she does with it. So I've offloaded the problem. I pay somebody, Brian. That's there, how I handle there it. You go. There you go. But but I do use Hazel to automatically get that stuff to her, and it works not only from on my Mac, but if I capture a, a receipt when I'm out to eat at um, with um, ScanBot or whatever your scanning app of choice is on your phone, it does the same thing. It lands in the same folder, and Hazel on my Mac back at home takes care of it. Uh, Tim wrote in with a do not disturb tip. I did not know that. So we talked about how on the Mac you can enable do not disturb from the notification menu, which usually lives in the upper right hand corner of your menu bar. But do not disturb can be toggled on by option clicking the notification center icon on the menu bar. I had no idea that that happened. So there you go. You get a lot of extra stuff if you option click the menu bar. There's a lot of like hidden features that people just don't realize are there and you, you have to stumble into them. Apple doesn't do a good job of communicating them all. But then sometimes I think those are features that got through despite Apple. Like some engineer had this great idea and put it in and nobody noticed. What tech are you playing with these days, Katie? Uh, well, I've got a couple of things that I'm playing with and I, I use them side by side. Um, I have... Um, since I had loaded the uh, iOS 11 beta on my iPad, I will tell you, and this is very common with oh, betas. Oh, Katie yes. Floyd went on the beta train. Yeah. Only on the iPad, not on the iPhone. But I will tell you, this is very, very common with betas because they don't do the battery optimization and tweaking until the end that the battery life with a beta sucks, um, usually until the the last couple ends, ends of the, the beta. Um, so I, um, especially because I'm using my, my iPad more, I have um, started carrying a charger and a charging cable in my purse. Um, I guess I'm like Kelly Goumont uh, that I'm I'm doing that now. So what I did is um, I went on Amazon and I there's a really teeny tiny charging brick. It's actually the one that, that Kelly recommended. I will put a link in the show notes. I think it's made by Aki. Um, it is the size of the um, it's the size of the Apple iPhone charging brick. 
except the prongs fold in. So it's the size of the charging cable for the iPhone without the prongs because those those fold in. And it has two USB ports. So you can charge two things at a time. And one, if not both of them, is the higher power. I It, it, it will charge at least one device that at the higher power that the iPad requires. So um, that's been nice. I take that and I throw it in my purse. And I combined that with a um, a lightning cable from uh, that's made by Skiva. They're a company that I first got um, introduced to at Macworld a couple of years ago. They're MiFi certified. It's a retractable lightning cable, so I don't have all these cables. You know, you, you take something that has a cable and you throw it in the bottom of a bag, and no matter what happens when you pull it out, it's tangled. But um, so what this is, is this is a retractable lightning cable, but it's a lightning and micro USB cable. So it's got one of those little tips that come off of it that will convert micro USB to lightning. So I've got a lightning and a a micro USB cable so I can now charge all the things. So I've got a, a small retractable lightning and USB cable and I've got a power brick in my purse. I'm ready to go. I'm ready for the apocalypse. I think the next time I'm in the same room as you, I'm going to just make you pull all your technology out of your purse. I just want to see everything you carry. Well, and I keep it in a nice little tiny, um, I, I, you, you may not know this, but um, when ladies buy makeup, there's always a bonus that you get. And you usually get a little bonus bag or something that you can carry it with. Um, and they have little tiny, teeny tiny makeup bags. And so I put it all in one of those little teeny tiny makeup bags into the bottom of my purse. And so if someone ever robbed me and went in my purse, they'd be like, oh, this is a cute little makeup bag. And they'd open up and be like, and it's full of electronics. Okay. Hey, it works for me. Um, I would, uh, for tech I'm playing with, I would say that I would like to pick the Apple AirPods. We never really picked them on the show because they were just so hard to get. Um, but now they're a lot easier, more accessible to get in the Apple stores. They're more routinely. I think they just, at the beginning, they couldn't make them fast enough. And now they're kind of getting caught up with demand. I love these AirPods so much. Um, you know, they, it's a dental floss size case that has a battery in it. So they're always being charged when they're in a case. Um, I make, I spend a lot of time on the phone, just part of the day job. And I've had several different headphones over the years that I've tried to use with my, my mobile phone. Uh, some very fancy with noise canceling and things like that, which are helpful in the car, but, but just for sitting at your desk and working the AirPods, you can just wear them all day. They don't make you uncomfortable. You tap on them you get Siri. Um, you go in the car and like my wife's car doesn't have very good radio and getting the phone connected to the car stereo is a big pain in the neck. So I just keep the AirPods on, just keep one in my ear when I drive and I can listen to a podcast or whatever. And boy, these things have just made my life better. I don't know how else to put it. I, uh, I really like these AirPods. And if, uh, if you were thinking about getting them, but they were just too hard to get now, they are a lot easier to get. So you may want to, you know, treat yourself one day and go get a pair of AirPods. I endorse that. All right. Well, that is going to wrap us up for another episode. I do want to say thanks to our sponsors, Away, 1Password, Audible, and MacPaw. And we will see you all next time.